Thank you for listening to the Wealth Amplifier podcast. As a reminder, the goal of this podcast is to amplify a person, topic, or idea. On some episodes, members of the Amplius team will discuss a topic or idea. And on other episodes, we will invite an outside guest that has some particular insights or expertise. We really hope you enjoy the show. And like always with Amplius, if you have suggestions as to how we can make things better, please let us know. As a reminder, nothing on this episode should be taken as legal, tax, or investment advice. Tax, legal, and investment advice topics should be discussed one-on-one with the appropriate advisor. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Wealth Amplifier podcast. Today is Friday, June 16th, otherwise known as the Friday of Father's Day weekend. And given that occasion, we have a special treat on this episode of the podcast. For the first time, we are welcoming Sam Liebman to the podcast, otherwise known as Dad. So, Dad, welcome to the podcast. Well, it's good to be here. Before we start, uh, let me congratulate you on being nominated for CEO of the Year. Uh, What group was it that nominated you and what were their criteria? I mean, I know you are, but I want to know (laughs) why they thought you were. Right. That was really, uh, that was great. Great launch into your first podcast. That was not rehearsed and and thank you. Yes, I was up in Boston last week as one of the finalists uh, for RIA Intel is the organization uh, that that nominated me for uh, RIA CEO of the year. Uh, And there were about, I think, six finalists and um, a very deserving person won. That person was not me, but that's okay. Uh, And it was a uh, it was an honor to be nominated and it was a cool event. And thank you for mentioning well, so RIA, for those listening, is a registered investment advisor, which is what we uh, are at this point. And that was uh, that conference was held at MIT. Uh, no, no, no. There's a different conference that we do up at MIT. This one was held uh, at the Four Seasons in downtown Boston. I see. Very good. Very good. Okay. Um, so um, here we are. We're on the podcast. This I will say when I mentioned the idea to. Aaron and Pat and to our uh, outsource marketing team that for Father's Day, I should have my dad on the podcast. I have never seen so many people um, so quick, quickly reply with, yes, you got to do that. Uh, so uh, expectations internally are high. So hopefully we can deliver you. All right. Uh, yes. So what I thought we'd do, given that you have uh, uh, a lengthy and storied career uh, in the industry that most of our listeners know about, Uh, I thought I'd just dive in with some questions about your experience in the industry. Um, First things first. So you're uh, first generation American. You go to school. You go to Penn State for college. You're in the Coast Guard. You're a tax accountant. What made you decide to get into the investment business? Was it something you uh, always had interest in and, and knew you wanted to do? Or how did that come about? When I started working as a tax accountant after uh, uh, my active duty in the Coast Guard, uh, I started to read the Wall Street Journal. And uh, so I'd read the front page and the columns uh, that had to do with the economy and all that, and the stock market, the bond market, the commodity market. 
And I started to uh, get interested in what made them tick. I mean, what made them go up and down? When were they high, too, too high that should be sold or too low that should be bought? And, and how did the uh, markets and the public and investors react to certain uh, bits of information? And then on a very minor level, because I had very minor money in those days, <laughs> uh, I started to invest. Got it. Got it. Makes sense. And I and, and invest you did uh, as a uh, now we're over five decades from that date when you started and you've been uh, uh, universally recognized both locally and nationally in the industry as a, uh, uh, for lack of another word, a legend in your profession, but a a living legend and an ongoing thriving working legend. So let's get into uh, some of the uh, some of the ongoing things in our business. So given that you have a five decades experience uh, in, in this industry, give me, we'll do a little pro and con here. Give me one or two things that you think are inferior today, because the industry has changed a lot, compared to how it was either early on in your career when it started in our industry or in the business. You can answer it however you want. And maybe one or two things that you think are better. I'm sure there are lengthier lists on both, but uh, highlight a couple. Uh, so, uh, as most things are decidedly better today than they were then, certainly for our clients and us, uh, now having our own firm, that is the best it can be. So, uh, we have a, a dynasty and fidelity for custodian and for uh, our back office, which are top, top quality um in the business and uh, of course we are clients of theirs not employees of theirs and uh therefore they have to sort of toe the line or provide the proper uh what we think is the proper attention and service uh, to our clients so that is certainly superior i i would say this uh, having been, I started at the second biggest house on uh, Wall Street and uh, started training in November 1969 at Bation Company, B-A-C-H-E. I say that because I don't know how many people on here remember that name. And it was the second biggest house on the street at the time. Right. Uh, and uh, all firms at that time, there was sort of an unwritten rule that none of them were public, they were partnerships. And uh, so on the one hand, they didn't have any other interests uh, that they wanted us to put forward. Um, so it was just the clients and their investments and that was it. They didn't have any other agendas or asset raising or opening checking accounts or whatever else the other banks and institutions or insurance companies uh, you know, wanted you to do. So that's about the only positive that I can figure. Now, of course, in those days, uh, we originally were called registered reps. Um, and uh, it was like one stock at a time, one bond at a time, um, pl financial planning, tax planning, uh, asset allocation, uh, were sort of unknown at the time. 
So you built the portfolio sort of like a body <laughs> from the feet up rather than the head down. And uh, you can end up with five halfbacks, three quarterbacks, <laughs> and, and uh, that, that would be it, uh, and two ends. Uh, so that um, everything was on a commission basis. Uh, there was no fee-based business on our side of the business. Now, today, we are all, uh, virtually all, or all, totally all, fee-based. Yeah, completely. Um, uh, which means uh, our, our interests uh, directly coincide with our clients' interests. The better our clients do, uh, the better we make, and uh, the more they refer uh, their additional assets themselves and, and uh, outside assets. So, and uh, we now do uh, an in-depth, very high-quality financial plan, uh, which is uh, which entities that we should have to uh, optimize the net after-tax return to our clients. Um, and uh, so we have all the assets that, that same way uh, uh, on a fee basis with no commissions, markup, markdowns, or anything else like that. Uh, so we are strictly aligned with our clients. Which is agreed uh, a fully, uh, I can say it with my, let's say, 20 plus years in the industry and 15 in wealth management, certainly far superior way to work uh, from what I came from, let alone where you started way back when uh, in, in, in this. So let's go back to those days, but more also on the uh, something you just mentioned on the investment side. So when you first started in the business, um, it, as you said, things were sort of stock by stock. Uh, people were referred to as stock brokers and they were you know, touting research, recommending an individual stock. You didn't really follow that path. So you early on started investing in, in, in investments that others were not doing as much, such as municipal bonds and convertible bonds, and then started emphasizing topics like asset allocation and portfolio construction, which were sort of, I would say, almost institutional concepts, if at all, out there at, at that time, even though they're a regular part of what we do now. So I guess, for lack of another way of putting it, was that a visionary decision on your report? You saw the future and you knew that that's where you wanted things to go. You thought that stuff was just more important. You thought it was interesting or just all the above, none of the above. But how did you avoid the sort of stock by stock, stockbroker uh, stuff that, uh, you know, uh, let, let's say most of those people I don't think are still in this business? Right. Well, actually, so um, my registration uh, was actually in May of uh, six months later after the, you know, the test and the apprenticeship and so forth. Um, I actually took a pay cut to come into the business yeah. and uh, <laughs> that was good. But in any case, um, so in May of uh, 07, now there was a fierce bear market, uh, which started, I believe, in December of 68. So 69 and 70, a very bad bear market. Um, people were, the, the guys who were already here before, the people who were here before were doing uh, very uh, little business. Now, part of the reason for the bear market was that interest rates had gone up very substantially. And of course, you're always looking for 
high ultra high net worth or high net worth clients uh, off in the future. Now, uh, I decided that the bond market would have to improve before the stock market did in that my view in, in the studying of it that I had done over those five or six years uh, was that the bond market was actually the foundation for the stock market. So everybody was trying to do stocks and striking out. And there was fixed commissions, so stock business paid a lot. And uh, I decided to start with municipal bonds. Therefore, people in high brackets could use municipal bonds. Rates were very high. And, and as far as stock market exposure, rather than buying one individual stock after another, Magnavox, RCA, whatever was hot at the moment, I decided to uh, do convertible bonds. Now, there was no research. So there were also bonds. They had been affected by high interest rates. So they were down substantially. And they had the conversion right to common stocks. So I figured, well, if the stock market ever does come up, and it would only come up after the bond market, interest rates topped out, started to go down, and bonds would go up first. And that's actually how it happened. Uh, that bear market ended about uh, 11 months uh, in the bond market before it ended in the stock market. So in any case, convertibles, there was no research. But at the back of the S&P guide, which we used to use like a Bible, there was all the data on the convertibles, which was the, the credit quality, the interest rate, the amount of stocks it was convertible into, the dividend coverage that the stocks actually paid which they'd have to give up in full to not pay to convert and all that. So uh, I did two different things. Now, a the, the lot, lot of nice guys, a lot of characters in the business in the old boardroom system where you had a bullpen there and I was at the top center of the bullpen at that time. Uh, those guys were trying to do stocks and uh, I remember they would say, you're doing convertible bonds, you're doing municipal bonds. They only pay $5 a bond commission. I said, you're right. So I did 100 bonds today, therefore 500 uh, gross commission and uh, $100,000. I said, how much? Uh, how many shares of stock you did today? Zero. So I said, well, five times something is better than zero times something. Right, so right. Yeah. there I was. So, so I built a, a practice and got referrals because I was doing something that I thought was a better way to invest and that very few people were also doing. Right. So my tax background, accounting background, corporate auditing background uh, was a leg up uh, also uh, over, let's say, the average uh, stockbroker or registered rep at the time. Yep. Uh, I, I'd say that's an understatement for sure. <laughs> um, so uh, let moving this to, I guess, your historic perspective on the modern day in that right now, there, despite the fact that the markets have, have had a nice start to this year, there are a lot of macro headwinds out there for the next several years. We have, uh, just to name a few, national, national debt, uh, very divisive polarized politics, inflation returning for the first time in 40 years, uh, armed conflict, uh, not to mention uh, growing rivalries around the globe, and and any number of other things that I didn't that I didn't mention. Do you, when you look forward, um, 
And you've seen a lot of market environments and a lot of political environments and a lot of economies uh, over the course of your career. When you look forward, do you think things are as treacherous and, and let's say dicey as some of the more negative people would say over the next few years? Or are you more in the camp of the, well, we haven't seen this exact playbook before, but we've seen some pretty ugly stuff too. I was there for the 87 crash, the financial crisis, wars, depressions, reset. well, not, not the Great Depression, but the, the, the Great Recession, et cetera. Uh, what is your perspective on that? Are the next several years as potentially dire as some say over the next decade, or is it more uh, in line with stuff you've seen before? Well, if I could use the phrase, they're equally dire. <laughs> there, there, there is such a phrase. So there was always something happening. And the more time you spend in the business uh, on advising people how to preserve and maintain their wealth, managing their investments. Now, you see from time to time things that you can predict and things you can't predict. And then you see with these 53 years of experience how the markets reacted to those various events, such as the crash of 87, as you mentioned, uh, such as 9-11, such as the, the great uh, uh, middle to late 90s, ending in 2000, and then nine, the worst nine years. So everybody's at that point, oh, they love stocks and they got every tech stock, every dot com, pets.com, whatever it was. They're all great. They're going to make the future and everybody's going to stay rich forever. And that is a time when you get the most exposure to the market. People have most of their money invested. So so to speak, if you have your own, if everybody has every dollar in the market, there's nobody left to buy. So then what happens after those great five or six years, which were fantastic? From 2000 to 2009, we had the worst nine years since 1929 to 1938. So everybody hears about the Great Depression, and it was worse. No question it was. But in the markets, those nine years were the second worst to the Great Depression. During that time, we had one bear market, which started in 2000, which went down 50%. And then we had another bear market, which started in 07, uh, caused by different things altogether. The one was the dot-com burst, the, the first one, you know, in 9-11. Uh, there, there you had the real estate and mortgage crash and the credit default swaps and all in 2007 to nine, and that went down 57%. So those are some of the worst bear markets in history. And yet somewhere like four or five years later, if you stayed invested in broad-based quality indexes, you actually came out on top and made another high. In other words, saying that it's, it's staying, it, it, what do they say? It's time in the market, not timing the market. That's right. In those times, you don't know where the bottom is. It looks like the bottom is below zero. But you stay in broad-based quality indexes during that time. If you believe this country will still exist and free enterprise capitalism will still be a good thing to provide most, best for most people, if you stay in there, 
by 2013, after that worst nine years since the Depression, you were actually at a new high. So all you had to do is stay there. Now, if when you get to euphoric times, like the year 2000 and 2007, you have like a risk control method, which says that you are a 50% stock guy, 60% stock, whatever your deal is. If you then maintain that discipline, let's say you've made big money in the five years ending in 2000, all you do is keep your asset allocation the same. So if you were a 60% guy and stocks went up to 70, chop them down to 60, you're not outsmarting the markets going down, you're just controlling your risk. Then at that point, when the market does get smashed, if you're still a believer in this country and stocks are down 50% from where they are, you say, well, if I buy some big blue chips in, in broad-based indexes, I may do even better. So if you stayed in, you broke in by 13. If you had money because you had taken some off at various peaks, to buy, you did even better. And so we now have problems with tremendous debt that's going to have to be paid for, uh, entitlements, which are going to start to decrease in 10 years if we do nothing. Uh, we have the uh, Ukraine war uh, brought on by, by Russia. We've had in the past the Arab oil embargo uh, when the Egypt and Syria attacked uh, Israel. And uh, there were gas lines all over the country in those days in the 70s. You wondered when you were ever going to get out. But you did. And then you hit a peak. And then you crashed at 87. So the point is, you have to roll with the punches. As time goes on, you see events that occurred that caused something up, down, sideways in the market. Uh, the, the yields are way up, but the stocks haven't gone down. That's wrong. It's out of line, you know? So you yeah. react to these things. Having said that, I am sure that whatever the next debacle du jour is will be caused by something new and unknown at the time. And you, you, you got to have a, a thick skin, a, a buffalo hide, and roll with the punches. Yeah. And then, you know, and then more, you know, tangibly that, you have to have a, uh, a detailed, you know, financial plan and a disciplined investment approach with risk monitors, like you mentioned. Yeah. And um, you know, because I'm, I'm always uh, sort of uh, preaching the importance of uh, behavioral finance. But one of the number one things we do is uh, stopping people from making big mistakes, which the markets and economies give you plenty of opportunities for big mistakes. Absolutely. So to that end, um, and we have a, we have a few minutes left. I have one. I, one or two more questions, but one that just came to mind uh, when you when you were talking about this, and I I see this one I'm, in my opinion a mistake, but I'm curious to hear your thought here uh, that, that a lot of people make, um, and uh, I I actually would say I hear it a little bit more uh, surprisingly from your generation, though. Don't get me wrong, I hear it from my generation and below plenty too, and that is letting your personal politics and political beliefs influence your market strategy and investment decisions. As you know, over the last uh, several decades, we've had a lot of polarizing political times. There were people uh, that, uh, that loved Obama and really didn't like Obama. Same with Bush. And then Trump was a phenomenon all to himself in, in multiple directions. But um, 
how do you think people should think about politics as it relates to their portfolio and and what are uh, uh, what are some mistakes to avoid along those lines? Uh, generally speaking, um, you should try to curb your political instincts. Um, for instance, we've had uh, elections uh, in which one party won everything, the, the, the presidency, the House of Representatives, the Senate, so that one party controlled everything. And, and let's just say that you as an individual uh, and an individual investor uh, uh, don't like their politics at all. So you get very negative on, on things. Um, there's all types of statistics and uh, history in markets in which supposedly the right party got in and the market stunk, or the wrong party got in and the market was great. So you should try to disregard your, I'll call it your political emotions. Now, um, these uh, political events that occur can create uh, the passage of various laws uh, that can be negative for the economy, negative for uh, people uh, trying to get jobs um, and, and, and such. So you have to react to what really the facts are, not your emotions are at, at the time. Now, if you just think recently, uh, so we had a pandemic. I think the Spanish flu came out of Philadelphia 100 years before that yep. in 1918. And uh, first time in, in my life, uh, a, a pandemic with shutdowns and all. The initial part there, you had a, a, a severe sell-off in the stock market. Now, uh, the Congress and the administration uh, passed spending bills to shore up the economy. And, it's, and it helped, and that was good. And the markets uh, recovered rather well after a fierce, like, three-week sell-off. Um, so they did the right thing politically. Now, you can do too much of the right thing. So then the next administration gets in and the economy is already turning around and uh, they're trying to help everybody do better, uh, good motives, but they pass like a, a $1.67 trillion additional spending bill, which looked good on the surface. Initially, markets did okay. However, uh, what happened was that was part of uh, the creation of the most recent inflation. Um, so the point of this is, uh, sometimes party gets in, they do the right thing, but it has the wrong effect in the long run. So don't get involved with labels, get involved with what actually is done. So the latest decline we had last year was the worst decline in the bond market. Now, we, as 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 also investors in bonds, stocks, commodities, and asset allocators uh, had no allocation to intermediate and long-term bonds from the summer of 2020 because the Federal Reserve, which turned out to be wrong about inflation, had rates at zero. So a 10-year treasury was yielding one-third of 1%. Now, you ask yourself, 
if you buy that thing, what's the most you can make if you hold it? One third of one percent. Right, right. If everything, okay. uh, if everything breaks right, you can break even. Yeah, yeah. So one third of one percent, and that's way below the rate of inflation. So your real yield is negative, and your purchasing power. Point is that based on that, we did not own bonds. So the Federal Reserve and the administration is doing things that created this very low interest rate, and that was needed initially to solve the pandemic. So politicians help, and then they hurt. And and there was two different parties, helping and hurting. So it's not one party, it's not the other party, it's not one Congress, it's not the other. You got to look at what they do and then project how that will affect the market. So uh, being out of bonds was great. They lost the most since 1842. Matt has all these great statistics that I... I I have feelings he, he knows. So, so uh, yes, so that is the story. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, it's, it's it's good advice. And I do remember, it's funny, starting when I came over from more the institutional side and joined you uh, in 08, and then we had a big election in 08 and early 09, I remember you fielding calls from, from clients and visits from clients, you know, Obama got elected. The uh, you know the markets are going to crash. Was like, and I, I you know I'm new to this side of the business. Like, you know, 08 just happened. I think they already did crash, and 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 you were able to you know keep them invested and such. And then fast forward eight years in 2016, uh, Trump gets elected. The world's going to end. And it's like, no, no, no. That was also a bad time to just run and hide. You know. So I I, I do think uh, uh, th there is a consistency there, regardless of the political party, that, that you can't let the politics, or at least the emotions of the politics, as you put it. Uh, you know, drive drive the bus too much. But um, shifting gears at the close here, because we try to keep these, uh, we could go on forever. We do this every day. We just don't always record it uh, for people. And I'm sure maybe there'll be a little more more demand uh, to get you back on here. But just um, to close, I want to go in a totally different direction for the last question. Um, for those that don't know, many people know my father as a father, a friend, a parent, and an investment advisor and, and business person. But what they may not know as well is he is a world-class grandfather. So with that in mind, um, what investment advice would you give to your grandchildren today who range in age, I think, from 11 to Lizzie 19 or 20, something like that? Uh, right. So, uh, and I'm sure a lot of other people listening have kids and grandkids of that age, or maybe the kids and grandkids themselves uh, are listening. So what investment advice or financial advice would you give to that generation? Well, I would say to the extent that they get or, or earn uh, money uh, that they can invest beyond their expenses, they should invest periodically the same amounts of money, budget how much they have, Dollar cost average into the market is a very simple thing to do, uh, and uh, it's automatically uh, has been a very successful thing. So dollar cost average into the market. Now, you and I uh, have decided that the probability of success in investing is much better if we buy broad-based quality indexes as opposed to individual stocks. There's nothing wrong with individual stocks. The risk is higher. The return is higher. 
So we have decided that indexes are the best way to go uh, because our probability of success is greater. Our success has been very good uh, and our chance of failure is less. So I would tell them uh, to budget a certain amount, monthly, quarterly, whatever, uh, pick several blue chip indexes. They can use the name brands. Obviously, we know a lot of uh, esoteric and not so esoteric indexes and all that, but they can choose the name brands like the Dow Jones, the S&P, the NASDAQ, uh, you know, and that type stuff. And just keep putting the same amount of money in monthly, quarterly or whatever and hold it in there. Don't get scared out of the market. Don't get jumping into the market. Just keep that up consistently. And over time, you should do very well. Now, that's having a belief in this country, the quality of this country, the opportunity it offers, and free enterprise capitalism uh, is the best road. Now, assuming that we maintain all that in this country, if they do that, they'll build up a lot of assets over time. And a very good, uh, at least, uh, material or financial lifestyle. And, you know, th there is a cliche to, um, you know, that the, the best asset people can have in a lot of areas of life is time. But certainly with investing, it's not a cliche. It's reality. You know, the, the, the longer yeah. uh, the longer term you uh, you invest or those the earlier you start, generally speaking, the better results you're going to have. And uh, and to your point, individual stocks, uh there, there are opportunities for tremendous returns and tremendous losses in them. And uh, uh, to me, if you have enough of a runway in front of you, uh, there's just simply a, not a great justification for getting too exotic. And, and I would keep that much more uh, uh, straightforward, like you said. So we, uh, we ran a little over today because of the substance and quantity and quality of our guests. Uh, so, Dad, thank you very much for joining the podcast, and uh, happy Father's Day, and I will see you over the weekend. Happy Father's Day to you. Thank you very much, Matt. All right.